This is not the media. This is hell. Considering what we've all been through over the past couple of weeks, wouldn't it be great to get away from it all? I take that back. Looking at the entirety of how sucky 2020 has been so far, what with plagues caused by globalization, a cause that will never be addressed, and killings by cops, a system of policing that has as its historic roots slavery. And I take that all back, reflecting on those these past four frustrating years of Trump, or 12 years when you toss in Obama's inability to end the forever war or hold the previous administration accountable for torture and lying us into war. And we can keep going on and on when you think about it. It sure as hell would be nice to get away from it all, wouldn't it? I know that's the way I feel, and I'm betting a lot of you do too. And for whatever reason, we have this idea of some island utopia where we can live free of the stresses of our mainland world, despite those islands being surrounded by a fearsome ocean, which leaves every island vulnerable to its extreme weather, weather that grows more extreme with climate change. But even when we think we're getting away from it all by going to islands, it all gets back to us in the form of pollution, with too many islands becoming dumps for waste from far away, floating for thousands of miles and clogging shorelines and sea life as the waste washes up on our fictional utopias. So what explains this relationship we have with islands as places to start anew, disconnected from reality, despite the outside world encroaching upon them more and more, even swallowing many of them up with rising sea levels? As islands that have long supported human lives and cultures are disappearing, new artificial islands are growing from the ocean floor, literally, as great powers are in pursuit of geopolitical and territorial gains. Yet, even in those monstrosities of militarism, there may be hope when it comes to responding to our changing weather. We'll talk, you guessed it, islands in a few when we speak with geographer Alistair Bonnet, author of Elsewhere, A Journey into Our Age of Islands. Alistair is professor of social geography at Newcastle University. He's also the author of the 2018 book, Beyond the Map, Unruly Enclaves, Ghostly Places, Emerging Lands, and Our Search for New Utopias. His earlier writing includes the books Unruly Places, Lost Spaces, Secret Cities, and Other Inscrutable Geographies, as well as What is Geography, and the book how to argue. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. It's Tuesday, so producing must be Jess Lipka. Jess, how are you? Anything new in your world? Um, I'm good, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Not all that much new. Just You have moved recently, though, right? Yeah, um, you know, still set- settling in. Um, yeah, I love my new neighborhood. Yeah, I'm, on, I'm further south. I keep moving further south. Oh, really? So where? what's the big intersection by you now? Um, I am on 67th and like, I don't know, like near like Stony. Oh, crazy, yeah. crazy. There's a Muanoink right down there by about 71st Street that I've gone to. Okay. <laughs> Jess, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what are you refusing to concede? <laughs> what are you refusing to concede? 
What are you refusing to concede? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins our new gray and black. This is how winter cap. You can check out the new gray and black. This is how winter hat and all our merchandise right now by going to this is and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported. This is hell without you. We got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. And Jess, as a new producer board operator here on the show, I have a, this is how winter cap for you that just remind me before you leave. I want to make sure I get it to you. It's they're really, really nice. I was very surprised. They're incredibly warm. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at this is hell radio. You can email us your answer to this week's question from hell to Chuck at this is hell.com or Alex at this is hell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth this week, Jeff, Stands on a principle, which has got to hurt. Jess will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. So on the Patreon podcast last week, patreon.com slash this is hell, I gave a report on election reactions up north in small town America as described in the northern Michigan weekly newspaper, a community newspaper, the Houghton Lake Resorter. Throughout this year, we've been covering the community of Roscommon County, which is covered by the Houghton Lake Resorter, for three reasons. One, my family has been vacationing there every summer for 60 years since before I was born, and for that reason, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated with the region. Two, I got a subscription to the Houghton Lake Resorter as a gift during the last holiday season, which seems like a year ago. Jeez, 2020 sure is lasting long. And three, as a public service for those of you who do not spend time in small-town America, especially conservative small-town America, who do not have contact with Trump voters, who do not know anyone among your family and friends that are currently preparing their Stop the Steal signs for rallies this weekend, insisting that God put Trump in office, as a public service, we figured we'd give shed a little light on the people of a conservative small-town America region, using their own words from their letters to the editor. In these reports, we've meant, in the report on Friday, we mentioned a, a letter sent anonymously to the resorter complaining about dolls in blackface appearing on the lawns of some of their neighbors' homes. As they live in a subdivision, they're forced to drive by what the anonymous letter writer saw as racist depictions anytime they're leaving their home or returning from work. The complainant also noticed that the blackface dolls, that is the only way that they are described, by the way, were particularly offensive in the run-up to Election Day, as this vote and campaign have had their controversies when it comes to race. So we got a tweet, a message via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio from Squid Pro Row about the blackface dolls, which, again, that is the only description we have of them. We do not know how big they are, how big these dolls are, how many there are, or if they're actually dolls or more like figurines or statuettes. All we know is blackface dolls, which makes you wonder if they are white dolls in blackface, which makes the whole thing even more weird. Squid Pro Row writes, Chuck, those blackface dolls, Christmas gnomes in the resorter sound like Zvartapit. Um, and then it says, Illy B. Ocean, at Illy B. Ocean on Twitter, has been fighting with racist Dutch people about them on here for like a month now. 
as we are approaching the holiday season, and I'm glad that Squid Pro Row brings this up, it's, it's a good time to remind us all that in the low countries, they can't get much lower as their Christmas tradition includes an assistant to Santa Claus named Zvarta Piet, who accompanies Santa, and as the original 1850 story had Piet as a Spanish Moor, he is depicted in blackface, and not only blackface, but also has curly wigs and bright red lipstick. The character is basically there to entertain kids and hand out candy, candy as Santa distributes gifts during the annual Feast of St. Nicholas, which happens on December 5th. Again, this tradition only dates back to 1850s, so it's the product of a very racist time when the global slave trade was still happening and when Dutch colonialism was still going on. So having a black person helping out St. Nicholas just seemed right for the time. Squid Pro Row is correct. The blackface dolls the letter writer complains about may simply be people who identify as, you know, the people who put them on the lawn, may be those who identify themselves as being from the Netherlands, that they are merely celebrating the holidays, their Christmas, and their nation's traditional way. And maybe, just maybe, there is more than one neighbor who identifies as Dutch, as the anonymous letter writer says that this was happening on several neighbors' lawns. And maybe they all just enjoy the Zwarte Piet tradition. While their community is in central and northern Michigan, the western and southwestern part of Michigan does have a lot of people from the Netherlands, so many that they named a town Holland, and they actually have an annual tulip festival not far away. So it is possible there are merely Christmas decorations. Very racist Christmas decorations. Except for one problem. While Christmas decorations do seem to be going up a lot earlier every year, and especially this year with the pandemic, it seems people are pushing that decorating season up even further. The blackface dolls were put on display in mid-October, nearly two months prior to the holiday season. So unless these are the most dedicated followers, the lowest country tradition that a growing number of people who live in those low countries want to sweep into the dustbin of history, they're probably just racist, but a weird kind of racist. Like, who would put blackface dolls on their front lawn? And what is the message they're trying to send? Is it supposed to be offensive and that's it? I mean, I don't really get it. What's the point? Who the hell knows? If you want to hear all of our reports this year on life in small-town America, subscribe on Patreon to our weekly Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday at patreon.com slash thisishell. We don't only discuss the Houghton Lake Resort around the Patreon podcast, but we have done it several times, dozens of times probably this year, so... You should check out all of our reports on what's happening in small-town America if you want to know what's happening in small-town conservative America. We want to thank our newest subscribers for joining us on Patreon. Thanks to Cecilia P., John F., and Esther K. We got a guest suggestion from Christoph, who wrote to us, like you can, at chuckatthisishell.com, or you can send us a Facebook message or tweet us, uh, you know, DM us a tweet, whatever. Christoph writes, I enjoy the show. I'm not sure if he's been on or not, but Rutger Bregman would be an interesting guest. His book, Humankind, was great, and his interview with Tucker Carlson was priceless. Sincerely, Christoph. The book Christoph is referring to is Humankind, A Hopeful History by Rutger Bregman, which was the number one bestseller in 
the Low Countries, the Netherlands, and which claims to oppose the argument that humans thrive in a crisis and that our innate kindness and cooperation have been the greatest factors in our long-term success on the planet. So no, I cannot square that kind of thinking, being the number one bestseller in the Netherlands and the annual holiday appearance of Svarta Piet. As for the interview with Tucker Carlson, you can see it at Rutgers twitter feed and only at his twitter feed because apparently the interview with tucker carlson never aired but rutger was able to get a recording posted it online more importantly carlson gets very upset during the interview and calls rutger a tiny brained moron and if tucker carlson thinks you are a moron then yes you may be perfect as a guest here on This Is Hell. So thanks, Christoph, for the suggestion. If you want to see that interview, you can go to Rutger Bregman's uh, Twitter feed at R.C. Bregman, B-R-E-G-M-A-N, and watch the interview with Rutger given by Tucker Carlson. You can send us your comments, criticisms, both constructive and destructive alike. Thoughts? Topics or guest suggestions to Chuck at thisishell.com. You can message them to us via our Facebook page or DM them to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. And unless you tell us otherwise, we will likely share your writing on air. So for a couple of people who sent us emails this week that said, please do not read these on air, we are honoring your requests. If you want to send us anything, some physical thing in the mail, you can do that too by addressing whatever you want to send us to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And thanks to Fred and Simi, because I think I forgot to thank you for your series of hand-drawn comic books on the pandemic. So again, thanks to Fred and Simi. This is not the media. This is hell coming up, our world of islands. And what they reveal about our relationship with nature, Jess will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you refusing to concede? What are you refusing to concede? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black. This is hell winter cap. You can check out the new gray on black. This is hell winter beanie and all our merchandise right now by going to this is and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported. This is hell. Again, you can email us your answer to this week's question mail, tweet it to us, send a message via Facebook, but we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. This week, Jeff stands on a principle. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. In our minds, islands are far-off places where we can get away from it all and start anew. Utopias that can reconnect us with the natural world in ways we cannot do on the mainland, apparently. But they are also sites of globalized trade and geopolitics threatened by rising sea levels from climate change and increasingly dumps for the world's waste here to guide us through the fascinating world of islands. Geographer Alistair Bonnet is author of Elsewhere, A Journey into Our Age of Islands. Alistair, welcome to This Is Hell. Thanks very much. 
Thanks for having me. Alistair is professor of social geography at Newcastle University. He's also author of the 2018 book, Beyond the Map, Unruly Enclaves, Ghostly Places, Emerging Lands, and Our Search for New Utopias. I'm really excited about this conversation because just last week we were talking to uh, Anna Lohenhaupt Singh about her new online project, this multimedia project called the Feral Atlas. And it's all about the human and uh, contact with non-human forces and what happens when when humans do come in contact with non-humans and the ferality, as she calls it, of the unintended consequences. So, and she's a geographer as well. And I've been, and it's a fan, it's a really fantastic website if you haven't had a chance to check it out yet. So I've been looking forward to this conversation as well. You write that this is the age of islands. New islands are being built in numbers and on a scale never seen before. Islands are also disappearing inundated by rising seas and dissolving into archipelagos. What is happening to islands is one of the great dramas of our time, and it is happening everywhere. Islands are sprouting or being submerged from the South Pacific to the South Atlantic. Now, I was going to ask if this was unprecedented or or unique and why it is happening, but I guess the better question is, when was the last time that there was so much activity with islands? Yeah, never before. I mean, this is um, a unique uh, era in terms of islands. I mean, I do have a history in the book which shows that we have been building islands for thousands of years. Uh, The artificial island is not new. Um, And uh, I start off my uh, adventure going to some, just some humps uh, of uh, ground in the middle of a a Scottish lock um, because um, not many people realize that these little humps in in the lake are in fact artificial islands built uh, hundreds and thousands of years ago when people used to spend a lot more of their time um, on the sea, on the water. It was like their their main street, their motorway. But the thing is, it used to be really hard to build an island. I mean, it still is, but back then, you just have to heave these lumps of stone into the water generation by generation. I mean, it really was something that took hundreds of years. But now we can squirt out these islands uh, in in the course of a year and um, we are building them um, uh, all over the place in all sorts of shallow seas Uh, and I was fascinated by the fact that we're building these um, quite small you know uh, they're not high um, shallow islands all over the world at the same time at the very same time that um, islands are disappearing um, because of sea level rise it's struck me as absolutely crazy and intriguing and a certain type of like madness. And I thought, oh, I wouldn't mind having an exploration of that. Yeah, and it's really fascinating. Are, are ancient islands, are, I'm sorry, ancient artificial islands, mm. are they all around us? We just have to look where they are because, you know, I've been canoeing down a river and I've gone up on a really small island and looked around yeah. it for a little while. And I, I can't tell if that was an artificial island or if that was a natural island. So are artificial, ancient artificial islands all around us? They are. And it's actually one of the areas of archaeology that has not been um, developed sufficiently because you find them all over the world. And um, uh, indigenous peoples, whether the Americas or Europe or in the Pacific, were building islands. I mean, the question is, like, why would they put so much effort into it? Um, but they had, they've got so many advantages that they're, they're safe. Um, you can, as I say, be on your economic main street. But now a lot of these artificial islands, people don't know they are. Um, they just look completely natural. They've been overgrown. They've gone returned, uh, returned to nature, as it were. 
Uh, like in this Scottish lock I was mentioning, I, I rode to one of these islands, unnamed, they're all unnamed, but that one lock has over 20 of these artificial islands. So all around I could see little islands and they're all built by, by people. How do you find out about new islands? How do you find out about these really small islands? Because you write about the number of islands that there are in the world, which is a staggering number. And it's a number that I I, I can't even believe. And you seem to have your doubts about that number (laughs) of islands as well. So uh, so how do you find out about new islands? Well, I mean, the big um, spectacular new islands um, of the 21st century are announced. Um, and um, actually this year, 2020, at the end of this year, I think the biggest one ever, uh, biggest one ever in, in over the past few decades anyway, going to be revealed. And that is um, Ocean Flower uh, off the coast of China. It's going to be much bigger than anything in the, in the Gulf states. You know, they've got some famous artificial islands in, the, in Dubai and so on. But the Chinese um, are building big and uh, they're not keeping their light uh, under a bushel. Um, so in some ways, it isn't, uh, it isn't difficult to find out about uh, the big um, glamorous uh, artificial islands. What's tricky is to realise that we are surrounded by layered histories of um, island building and to sort of join the dots between the, the new fabulous glitzy ones and uh, the more kind of mundane ones of, the, of our distant ancestors. And you also write that there is no better place to start than the South China Sea when it comes to looking at artificial islands to the north or to looking at islands in general to the north and west, the coastlines of China and Vietnam bulge into the warm waters to the south and east lie Malaysia and the Philippines. This is one of the world's great trade routes said to be worth $5.3 trillion a year and is one of the cockpits of contemporary geopolitics. If islands are, as you call them, one of the cockpits of contemporary geopolitics. What happens to geopolitics when islands are threatened by rising sea levels? How destabilizing can climate change be to geopolitics when you consider its impact on islands as linchpins of globalization and trade? Well, yes, um, the sea level rise is threatening so many coasts. And um, Ironically, it's threatening um, places that we don't um, think of as islands yet, uh, but which will become islands, which will become archipelagos. Um, the seaboards uh, of the yeah, east of the United States, um, you know, other other vulnerable um, seaboards. Um, once the sea rises, um, uh, as it is predicted to do, um, we're going to see uh, archipelagization. Is that a word? Probably not. But anyway, turning of existing um uh, landmass into uh, a series of um, islands. So that's where the big impact is going to be. In the meantime, we're seeing um, islands in the Pacific, in the most sort of vulnerable parts of the world, which tend to be in the tropics, um, disappearing. Um, and uh, they are the kind of like canary in the coal mine um, for the rest of us. Um, they're not actually very big places at the moment, um, but um, uh, they are telling us, um, and they're, they're finger point, finger posts to the future. Um, I mean, you were talking about the um, South China Sea. What's going on there, of course, is you've got these um, once beautiful um, coral islands and coral reefs, um, which have been uh, massified by the uh, Chinese uh, military, poured over with concrete, um, turned into great big um, grey rectangles, 
uh, I call them like Frankenstein islands, um, and um, used as forward placements in um, China's uh, quite aggressive bid to have control over um, uh, Southeast Asia and uh, and East Asia and the Pacific, indeed. Um, so the the ability to build military islands um, is really important for states that want to project their power. Um, because they give you a give you a hold on a place, and they give you two hundred extra miles of um, territory. That's what extends from every island that you can claim. Uh, there are lots of um, military advantages in building them out from your coast. So, how are those what you call Frankenstein islands different from, say, the U.S. military base on Diego Garcia and the Indian Ocean's Chagos Archipelago? How are these? newer islands different from the more traditional island military base other than the fact of their artificiality? Yeah, well, it's true that uh, the United States actually did start this um, process of um, creating military islands uh, in the Pacific um, with um, uh, um, Johnston Atoll. Um, and in the mid-20th century, um, it was used by the, by the U.S. for all sorts of them. Um, uh, nuclear and other types of um, um, warfare testing. Um, what's happened is that the um, Chinese have uh, taken this idea and um, really run with it um, in order to um, make a claim that the whole of the South China Sea is theirs, um, which is very much a disputed claim because it's surrounded by all those countries you just mentioned, and you would have thought they all had an equal claim on it. But um, once you've built these islands, and China's built seven, seven, you know, substantial islands now in the South China Sea. And um, on the one I really look at in the book, um, uh, Fiery Cross Reef, um, it's got a three kilometre long runway on it. So once you've got a three kilometre long runway on your island, then you can use it for bombers with massive uh, range, up to 6,000 kilometres, in fact. So it's all about extending your power. Um, yeah, but it's not something that China invented, and it's not the China's not the only country that's doing it. That's what I was going to say. Uh, if uh, China, I was going to ask if uh, China plans on expanding this program of built uh, islands. But worse, are other nations copying this? Are they considering doing the same thing, building what you call Frankenstein islands? Yeah, well, India is underway, in, and it's actually um, in contact with the Chinese to get some um, help with this in in building its own forward placements in the. Um, Indian Ocean. Um, yeah, it, it, unfortunately, the law of the, of the sea at the moment means that if you are able to build one of these islands and it is, uh, able, you're able to claim it, then you get 200 extra kilometres uh, um, of, um, of, of territory. So there's every advantage in doing it. Um, and um, uh, what needs to happen is the, for a rethink. Uh, so people can't just keep plonking uh, concrete in the in the sea on in the high seas and um, and making their country vastly bigger. And I want to uh, let's you touch on this already a little bit, but I want to uh, talk about the way in which these artificial islands are being built. You write the satellite and aerial images show how the reefs are latched onto by long black snake-like pipes that curve through the water. They wend back to boats that are grinding up the sea floor, sand, coral, crustaceans, everything into building material. This marine paste, as you were calling it earlier, is squirted onto the island. Later come the concrete mixers, the airstrips, naval harbor and the missile silos. One of the latest victims is Johnson's South Reef. It has been snared by an inseminating predator 
it, in its early stages, it is bulked up. Later, it will be squared off a hostile alien in a beautiful blue sea. Now, according to a study by the National Ocean Service of the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, coral reefs are some of the most diverse and valuable ecosystems on Earth. Coral reefs support more species per unit area than any other marine environment, including about 4,000 species of fish, 800 species of hard corals, and hundreds of other species. Scientists estimate that there may be millions of undiscovered species of organisms. The biodiversity is considered key to finding new medicines for the 21st century. So there's so much that's important about the resources that are being churned up to make these artificial islands. What impact do these new islands, what what impact do they have, their actual presence have on the nature that surrounds them? Yeah, I mean, most uh, new islands are environmental disasters. Um, Clearly what happens is that the water around uh, them becomes um, stagnant. Often it's to do with the shapes of the new islands. They create these harbors and and, um, other shapes where the water just becomes um, still and stagnant and uh, the, um, the area under under the sea around the islands is often so full of silt that um, nothing can um, survive anymore. Um, so I kept on finding these um, rather depressing stories about islands um, as I was uh, undertaking the research for the book, which took about two years, uh, popping around to, to different islands. Um, and I was uh, desperate to find one that had a more positive story. And um, eventually I did. And it wasn't actually from very far from home. Um, here in uh, in England, just across the uh, North Sea, the Dutch, um, God bless them, are you know coming up with some ways of building artificial islands which aren't just destructive. One thing I didn't really get was you you write about the spectacular new leisure and entertainment islands are emerging just minutes from the shore of a number of coastal cities. You were touching on this earlier, uh, like the artfully shaped new islands sculptured in the Gulf states. These are sites of turbocharged consumerism. To you, what explains these processes continuing in light of climate change and our changing environment? Because this would seem like a risky investment. And I would think that the market would say, you know, do not invest in this because climate change is probably going to destroy all of these islands within the next few decades. So why would the market allow this kind of investment to continue? Well, that is a great question. But you see the next few decades and um, that uh, can be pushed back. Maybe it's 50 years, maybe it's 100. Um, and that is enough time to make a, a good profit. I mean, the fact is that uh, buying um, property on an island uh, comes at a premium. People will pay a lot of money um, to look out over water um, and um, they are willing to take the risk. So there's still a great profit margin for developers who not only want to build houses and apartments on new islands, but actually build new islands themselves and uh, stick a load of apartments and houses on them. There's a a big profit margin in that uh, and customers still want to come um it's something i don't know if this is really quite rational because you were talking about it you know what's the economic rationality of it well at some level you have to say well maybe the it's not just about that there is a kind of um urge that we have as a species uh to be close to water um and to have it in our sight line um it's almost um something primal um and um 
people, whether it's rational or not, seem to be willing uh, to pay over the odds for that. And I definitely want to talk about the way that we relate to nature vis-a-vis islands. We've been speaking with geographer Alistair Bonnet, author of Elsewhere, A Journey into Our Age of Islands. Alistair is professor of social geography at Newcastle University, and he's also author of the 2018 book Beyond the Map, Unruly Enclaves, Ghostly Places, Emerging Lands, and Our Search for New Utopias. His early writing includes unruly, I'm sorry, includes uh, unruly places, lost spaces, secret yeah, yeah, cities. Yeah, I've written a bunch, and, lot of books. Yeah, <laughs> in, in, uh, in Inscrutable Geographies, as well as What is Geography and How to Argue. I need to read that book, How to Argue. You write, uh, since these uh, luxury hotels off the Gulf states coasts are made by gouging out the seabed and planting rows of offshore and improbably shaped air-conditioned hotels. These apparently carefree shopping and holiday destinations can be just as environmentally damaging as their military cousins. How is turbocharged consumerism and as environmentally damaging as the military? Can shopping be as bad as war environmentally? I mean, at least fewer people die from hyper-consumerism, right? Mm. Yeah, I don't know about that one, but um, it certainly um, is obvious if you go and visit Dubai and spend any time there um, that something uh, very weird is going on in what is an environment that is almost um, too hot to live in and is uh, actually getting hotter. Um, the uh, islands being built um, around Dubai and other Gulf states uh, are, are building their islands as well. Um, um, are covered in these um, extraordinary hotels, which um, demand huge amount of resources, um, not least of which, of course, is the air conditioning to keep them at a temperature that is livable. Uh, although my heart went out to the guys who are actually out there building them. Um, you know, Dubai is full of um, men from South Asia um, out in the most incredible heat. And uh, I was talking to one of the property developers there and he was explaining, yeah, there's a law. We've got a law in Dubai. You know, people cannot work outside if the temperature goes above uh, 50 centigrade, which is pretty, pretty hot. Um, but he says and he gave me a wink. He said, you know, often the uh, thermometer gets broken. And, uh, you know, so what we've got is people who are working in temperatures which um, do kill them. I mean, there are regular deaths of um, the, the, the men who are out there. Uh, creating these uh, luxury uh, holiday resorts. Um, so, yeah, Dubai has got some amazing islands. I mean, it has um, the Palm Jumeirah, which is um, a fantastic, extraordinary place. But the one I really wanted to get to was the world. Um, you know, so if people fly over Dubai, they can look down out of their aeroplane window and they'll see a map of the world made of islands. Um and there are about 300 separate islands that constitute the world. And, uh, yeah, I thought, oh, I want to get onto one of those islands and see what the world looks like from ground level. Um, and I did manage to get to Lebanon. I mean, most of them haven't been developed yet. Um, but once you arrive on Lebanon, you can look out over Sweden and Germany and look over your shoulder towards Saudi Arabia. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's extraordinary. Um, it's a place that... Um, was going to be sold to multimillionaires, you know, Brad Pitt and I don't know, uh, Karl Lagerfeld. They're all going to buy their own islands. But um, it turns out they didn't really want their own um, sandy heap um, in Dubai. And uh, so it's been fallow for a while. But now some of them are, are being developed again um, for resorts for um, honeymooners.
<laughs> you know, and that just uh, getting back to our, our the relationship and our imaginary when it comes to islands. You write the idea of utopia clings to even the bleakest island. The first image of utopia was an island. It is telling. How insistent Thomas More was in the book, usually simply titled Utopia, his travel fantasy that gave us the world, that Utopia had to be an island. More tells us that the founder of this uniquely perfect realm, King Utopus, made it into an island. Originally, it was part of the mainland, but Utopus ordered a deep channel to be dug in order to bring the sea quite round. Only in this way could a flawless and completely new place be born. Utopia is a space apart, a jewel in the sea, a distant sight towards which one longs to steer. What does it say to you about us, about society, about humanity? Maybe it's just about the West, and as this is a work of Thomas More, when utopia must be detached from the world. I know it's intriguing, isn't it? Um, and um, that um, fact about uh, Utopia and Thomas More's uh, novel about Utopia, you know, I didn't realise it when I first, I just, it just went over my head. But going back to it, I realised that effort that uh, the founder of Utopia, the island of Utopia, put in to make it an island. Um, and it does seem to be that we like the idea of a complete and perfected um, realm and if a uh, territory is too complicated, um, if it's got too much going on and we can't see the borders and boundaries of it, of it um, then we somehow give up and think, well, this will never be perfectible. Uh, this will never be the perfect realm. Um, so there's something about the smallness um, and completeness of an island. Um, and it has to be, it's not just that it's an island, it has to be reasonably small. I mean, Australia, you could say, is an island. Um, but... Um, it isn't utopia. And um, it, so it has to be um, somewhere where you kind of got to be able to have a kind of like um, God's eye view of the whole thing all at once. I mean, ideally, you'd want to be able to go up to the mountain in the center of the island and see the whole thing. It would be sur you'd be surrounded by your island and it'd be your your perfect, you know, Robinson Crusoe um, uh, place, which you had a, an intellectual, imaginative um, grip over. Uh, and then you could create your utopia. Um, and Thomas More's utopia was a kind of egalitarian, sort of semi-communist, but it actually also had slaves. So um, it wasn't utopia for everybody. No, definitely not. So is it uh, our islands, are our fa is our fascination, fascination with islands and our concept that it is a utopia, is that concept all about control and trying to attain a control that we cannot have over our own lives when we're on the mainland? There is something about that, um, that sense of when you row over or even just cross the bridge, you feel a kind of sense of anxiety wash away um, because there's something simple and pure um, and knowable about islands and the, and the complexities and the, and the kind of unknowability of, of ordinary life kind of um, leaves you behind. Um, and that is also due, of course, with the fact that you're able to see the sea, you're able to see water, you're surrounded by this uh, mysterious substance, water, which um, we find restful and which we are drawn to. Uh, maybe because we're, you know, whatever it is, 90% water, are we? Um, there's something about our relationship to it, uh, which is uh, very basic. 
You mentioned notes you took while at Loch Awe in Scotland, as you were talking about earlier, on one of those artificial, small artificial islands that was thousands of years old. In those notes, you write, Islands equal crisis, the drama of so many issues, climate change, species loss and extinction, overpopulation, nationalism and pollution is played out with a special intensity on islands. Why are crises played out on islands? And can the same be said of the current coronavirus pandemic? Is that another crisis that we can see playing out on islands? Well, islands are actually... um uh, they, they fascinate me because they have so many uh, aspects uh, to them. They're, they're utopias, but they also could be hell holes and, and sites of a horrible experimentation. Uh, at the moment, um, a lot of island, islanders are congratulating themselves uh, because they are um, not affected or are able to keep um, corona at bay. Uh, so this is true of quite a lot of islands in the Pacific and um, other other small islands around the world. Um, they are feeling pretty smug about the fact that um, the mainland um, has this terrible disease. And why does the mainland have this disease? Because, you know, there's millions of them that are all kind of piled on top of each other. But us in uh, our small uh, communities, we look after each other and we are, uh, are free of uh, contamination. And there's a sense of... Um, these pandemics actually creating an environment in which people want to flee to islands, uh, even have their own island, um, so they can be um, free of not just the complexity, but the um, diseases and, and, and dirt of the mainland. Yeah, islanders are an interesting bunch. I mean, I've been talking to lots of them over the past um, few years, and they can be super friendly, uh, but they really have a sense that they're, living on an island is so much better. Um, than living um, on the mainland. Um, And um, sometimes they can also be a little bit hostile because that sense of like, this is our place. And, uh, you know, particularly on the private islands, because some islands, uh, artificial islands, as well as natural ones, are are owned uh, and um, are not particularly welcoming. Um, There's a whole uh, story in the book about my visit to Panama and the new islands being built off the coast of just of Panama City, which, if you know Panama City, is like a, a pretty, pretty difficult city to uh, be feel uh, comfortable in sometimes. It's quite noisy and, and dirty and so on. Uh, so the super rich in Panama, of which there are um, quite a few, have decided to live on their own artificial islands. Uh, there's two of them. They're called Ocean Reef. Uh, they're complete now. Um, and I managed to uh, get to visit them, but it really wasn't easy. Um, there are all sorts of checks and border points and people with guns. And uh, there are sensors around the islands to pick up anybody who would have the temerity to try and swim um, to the islands. They're a kind of um, enclave for the super rich, uh, which is also a pair of islands um, snapping out from the shores of uh, Panama City. So that's their new gated communities are islands, are actual islands yeah. where people are. It's, yeah. it's a moat. It, it's it's a pretty intense thought. You yeah. write in your uh, notes at Lac Ah, uh, the 21st century is throwing money and ideas at islands. The rich like them because they offer security and status, as you were just pointing out. But in an era of rapidly accelerating sea level rise and worsening storms, islands are fragile. They are the first places to be abandoned. The dream becomes a nightmare and the island a prison. Islands are often used as dumping grounds for the unwanted. They lure us, but they can easily and quickly become places of dread. Has global warming then changed islands from 
a possible utopia, a utopian escape to a potential trap? Yeah, it really has. And um, talking about Panama again, because if you just, um, you know, head eastwards um, 70 kilometers, well, that crosses the entire country and you get to the Caribbean side of uh, Panama. And on that side, you find um, hundreds of uh, small islands, which are the home of the indigenous uh, people called the Kuna. And the, the Kuna are uh, an amazing uh, people. They, they are one of the great, you know, survival stories of in, indigenous uh, uh, America um, because they, they're still there. They've still got their own language. They've still got their intact culture. And they really control that area. It was like a breakaway state. However, once you get onto the islands, um, you're really uh, struck by the fact that the ground is all pitted. The, the mud floor of the huts is all pitted. And as was explained to me, it's because the seawater comes straight over the islands um, in the winter. It comes up to the height of people's knees. Um, it completely um, inundates the islands. And so the islanders are having to relocate. And they really do not want to relocate. Um, they're looking to the mainland. Um, we've all got to leave, uh, people kept on telling me. Um, but there's nowhere really for them to go. No one's giving them any assistance to... Panamanian government doesn't give uh, two hoots, really. And uh, the mainland, you may think, well, that's uh, that's going to be safe, but it isn't particularly safe. It's full of malaria and uh, God knows what. It's a, it's just jungle. So they've built up this culture of island, island living culture for hundreds of years. Um, and now they're having to um, get out of there and get out of there quick. Um, they've probably got a few years left um, on these islands in the uh, in the Kuna archipelago. You mentioned Jay Appleton, a poet geographer who died in 2015 and who worried away at the question of why people find high mountains and islands alluring. We stumble around trying to pin down our feelings about landscapes, said Appleton, using words like happiness and grief, even though we know they don't really fit. We are, he said, using a second-hand terminology to describe a relationship which we do not properly understand. Why are we attracted to a place we do not understand? Why is going to a place we do yeah. not understand. Why is that attractive? Yeah. <laughs> Look, we don't really... Uh, I, I know people think that they, we know everything and we've, we've got a real great insight into our own you know, psychology and behaviour and clearly we've worried away at those points. But it doesn't mean that we've um, gone very far. There's all sorts of um, instincts that we have which are hard to explain. And uh, it's hard to explain why I wanted to spend two years get, trying to get to islands, which often I couldn't get to, um, trying to uncover these stories. It just became an obsession. Um, or, you know, why I spent each evening scribbling out little maps of the islands, because islands, are like, they create the most beautiful, extraordinary maps. Um, uh, it almost became like an art, artwork um, that I was um, embarked upon. Um, and if I was to um, try and explain it in, in rational terms, um, it, it wouldn't make much sense because I certainly um, didn't make any money out of it. In fact, I've lost quite a lot because of the ridiculous expense it, it, it is to, to get to islands. Um, so um, it's not rational, but it does, um, it does satisfy um, a, a deep uh, need. Um, when one crosses water, to the island when the boat nudges against the shore and you feel those rocks underneath the underneath the boat sort of growl away there's a real sense of arrival and satisfaction 
Um, sometimes I thought it was the water crossed that was more important than the actual island. Because actually, when you get to a small island, there isn't that much to do. Uh, they don't have like cinemas uh, or, or, you know, they don't have many people either. Um, so they can be, um, ironically, quite boring. Um, but the, the, the act of getting there and the sense of um, uh, achievement and completeness um, is um, indescribable. Um, another funny thing is that as soon as people get to an island, the first thing they start thinking about is getting to another one. This island hopping um, idea, you know, when people go to Greece and they go to the islands in, in the uh, Greek archipelagos, you know, it's all about island hopping. You go to one and then you hang about for a day and then you go to another one. Uh, it's like this restlessness um, which we feel. Um, so we love islands, but we're restless and we want to keep, you know, moving on, moving on. So you also write that in the HQ of a Dubai developer looking at maps to the world, as you were pointing out, and the universe, these huge island archipelagos that are being built, or watching the film of China's Ocean Flower, which you mentioned at the beginning of our our conversation, whose leaf-shaped islands jostle with high-rises and enclose a lotus-shaped island of medieval castles and roller coasters, or entering the gloom of a hut made of palm fronds in Panama, where each winter the water swirls across the sandy floor, as you were saying, it seems an inevitable question. The delirious, abnormal quality of many artificial islands is brazenly celebrated and any species that willfully wrecks its habitat can justifiably be accused of losing the plot. What explains to you why we've lost the plot? Why we've been become confused and don't know what to do next when it comes to building artificial islands that seem to be the opposite yeah. of what should be done in light of climate change and rising sea levels? Yeah. Yeah, well, our power has ex- exceeded our wisdom um, just because of the nature of uh, money and uh, technology. Um, we can do these things. We have the technology and we have the cash. Uh, and so we are rushing ahead um, doing stuff that would once have taken many hundreds of years. So we just need to you know, catch up with some of the um, um, slowness, the slow patterns of uh, previous generations. Not to say, oh, artificial islands are a terrible thing, we mustn't build any anymore, but to say we need to do it in a slower, more considerate way, and um, it can be done. Um, artificial islands can be done, work with nature, that, that uh, are sanctuaries for species, um, and where humans and uh, other animals can, um, can sort of cohabit. So um, I don't know whether I'm hopeful or not. I just know that, uh, yeah, in some, a few of the places I went to, there were definitely hopeful signs um, that we can work with nature rather than against it. You also write how we can't keep away from the sea, even though we know it is dangerous. It's a perilous love affair, a deep need that goes beyond the pursuit of wealth, exclusivity, or glamour. The central question of the drowned world, J.G. Ballard's 1962 science fiction novel about an inundated, overheating planet, is why people don't do anything to stop it. Ballard's curious speculative theory is that an atavistic part of the brain has been triggered, a primal urge to go back to the place where we first evolved and to slip, slither, and fall away into the amniotic ocean. Ballard has it as a place to return to back in time. Thomas More had it as a utopia. And D.H. Lawrence, as you point out in another point in your book, uh, he writes that an island is a nest which holds one egg and one only. The egg is the islander himself. And an egg can be seen again as a return 
to an earlier stage of life. What does this returning or for a return say to you about where we are now and what we think of our possibilities for the future? What does going to a past on an island say about where we are now and where we're going? Yeah, yeah well, it speaks that uh, to the fact that a lot of us want to escape. Uh, a, lot, a lot of us are not that uh, happy with the uh, 21st century and what we've seen of it so far. And we'd quite like to um, imagine that we could go somewhere, you know, physically escape uh, and find a sanctuary um, where we could um, build our own better place uh, and just imagine away um, all the bad stuff. Um, so there is a kind of escapism um, to do with islands, which I completely sympathize with. I mean, I love islands. I understand why people want to escape to them. I want to escape to them. Um, but um, I also understand that we um, can't actually all turn our backs like that. Uh, the people who are doing that just have to have very deep pockets. And um, I guess not being one of those people, um, I'm going to be left on the mainland um, with the rest of us. And uh, yeah, it's it's back on the mainland that we really need to start working with nature and uh, building um, places places that are a bit more like uh, utopia. Um, yeah, I guess so. Well, whether utopia is a good thing, I don't know. I mean, sometimes it seems like a rather uh, you know, simple idea, as if it's going to be a perfect place that's great for everybody. Maybe that, that's never going to be true. But anyway, I quite like the complexity and messiness of the, uh, of the mainland. Um, and having spent two years going to tiny little islands, um, I quite like the diversity and difference of the mainland too. Just and I know this is a really big picture question. I could have asked this at the beginning as the first question. You probably could have given a forty-five minute answer because this is such a big question. But how do islands affect our relationship with nature, our view of nature, especially in this age of climate change and pandemics? Yeah, islands give us um, a sense of control. Um, over nature and um, clearly most islands are not inhabited so you could say you know islands are sanctuaries not just for humans but very importantly uh, for other species and the uninhabited island is one of the you know few bolt holes where um, nature could be uh, left to its um, own devices but when humans um, get involved um, that uh, changes quite rapidly I mean, I'm left with the idea that um, we need to carve out spaces for nature, uh, spaces where we don't get involved, where we leave nature to it. And on one of the um, biggest artificial islands I went to in the Netherlands, um, it's called Flevopolder, uh, they've done precisely that. They, they've carved out a huge chunk of the island and rewilded it. Uh, they've just given it over to nature and now it's got you know wild ponies and wild cattle and uh, all sorts um, going on there and um, there's no human habitation whatsoever and so one half of the island is for people and one half of the island is for nature and uh, you may think oh what a shame it shows that we can't live together as it were um, or maybe we can but at the moment it looks like we do have to you know um, create spaces where nature can thrive, and then spaces for us, and the two uh, are separate. 
One last question for you, Alistair. We've been speaking with geographer Alistair Bonnet, author of Elsewhere, A Journey into Our Age of Islands. Alistair is professor of social geography at Newcastle University. Again, author of Elsewhere, A Journey into Our Age of Islands. One last question for you, Alistair. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question, I promise is the question from hell the question we hate to ask you might hate to answer our audience is going to hate your response and in this question from hell something i rarely do during a question from hell i get to quote the daughter of our guest you write remember my 17 year old daughter i remember uh, my 17 year old daughter standing in the kitchen toast in hand wise steady and unimpressed when you were telling her about your plan to visit all these islands She warned me with icy authority, you're fundamentally dumb. All you're doing is globalizing your male menopause. But then she smiled gloriously. I want to come. Others were less generous, narrowing their eyes in the presence of some unfortunate but undefined species of post-colonial self-indulgence. This is travel writing, in a sense, in a time of climate change. To what degree do you think travel writing has become a post-colonial self-indulgence? Yeah. Yeah, I know. I really wrestle with it. Um, travel writing. I mean, have we reached um, peak travel writing? Um, are we are now seeing a kind of uh, post-travel um, uh, environment? Um, I know it, it's it's hard for me because I uh, am a travel writer. Um, but at the same time, um, the travel industry um, is one of the uh, problems that I keep bumping into and uh, pointing out. Um, Actually, it kind of comes back to some of those earlier books that you mentioned that I've written, because a lot of them are about exploring the places around us and about us, you know, under the city, uh, in the abandoned uh, buildings. Um, They're kind of like a uh, reimagination of what exploration is about. Exploration is not about like going off a uh, thousand miles on, on a plane to, uh, somewhere that everyone else has gone to uh, these days, but is in fact going somewhere more unique, more special. And that is often just around the corner or under the ground from where you are. Um, so I do think travel writing um, has a problem and I do think it needs um, reinventing. Um, uh, and um, whether I've been uh, part of the problem or part of the solution, I'm not sure, probably a bit of both. Alistair, I really, really enjoyed this book. It's a great topic uh, that uh, we haven't discussed on our show in the past, but it's been really fantastic discussing it with you. We have been talking with geographer Alistair Bonnet, author of Elsewhere, A Journey into Our Age of Islands. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. That's great. Thank you very much. Take care. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. This week's question from hell is, what are you refusing to concede? What are you refusing to concede? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray and black This Is Hell winner hat or beanie or cap, whatever you want to call it. You can check out the new gray and black This Is Hell winner hat and all our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this this week's question about our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. This week, Jeff stands on a principle. Jess, how are listeners answering this week's question from hell, which is, what are you refusing to concede? What are you confused? <laughs> what are you refusing to concede? Or confusing to recede, uh, yeah, either yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
the uh, first response um, is from Jeff Dorchin. Uh, Sweet. He, he says, um, I refuse to admit defeat. I swear that I will come up with an answer to the question from hell so persuasive, <laughs> hilarious, insightful, and clever that it will overcome my ban as a person affiliated with the show from actually winning one day. And on that day, I will win a This Is Hell enamel camping mug. <laughs> so guess what he wants in the mail? <laughs> <laughs> um, Brian S. says, uh, Territory. Mark C. says that refusing to concede this past election has any bearing on the next four years. Andy F. says, I refuse to concede that myself and everyone else past the age of 18 months is sane. Um, again, what do you refuse to concede? Louis D. says, I refuse to concede that cats are better than dogs or dogs better than cats. Fish are better because during the lockdown and a food emergency, you can eat them. <laughs> you can eat your cat or dog. <laughs> that's, that's the issue there. Wally R. says uh, that Ted Cruz is Zodiac. <laughs> Nick A., I refuse to concede my hairline because I don't like looking up definitions of things. Char- that, again, reseeding would come in there. Right. Well. <laughs> I think that's, I think, yeah. <laughs> um, Charlie B., ketchup does not belong on a hot dog. Bradley R., I concede everything. I'm tired, Chuck. <laughs> Fabio L., that I have wasted half my life and I will continue to waste the second half of my life because one cannot live productively when life has no purpose. No, that's happy thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what are you refusing to concede? Um, the last response from Martin F. Um, I have been diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, so there are plenty of things I refuse to concede. And I will share that list with you as soon as I make sure all my I's are dotted, all my T's are crossed, and that every word is spelled correctly, and my handwriting is neat and legible. And, oh wait, that H I wrote looks kind of weird, so let me get back, correct it, looks more like an H, and, oh wait, I wrote two and two. I want to be consistent, so now I have to decide which one I should correct. (laughs) That sounds like me answering the question from hell and doing anything when it relates to my life. We will have even more of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. And again, we will be announcing the winner of our new gray on black. This is hell winner cap, beanie, hat, whatever you want to call it. At the end of Thursday's show, following Jeff Dorch in the moment of truth, you can see our winner hat, an entire new line of merchandise that comes in black and has our very popular gray logo on it right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Thanks to Michael, who got the new This Is Hell winter beanie in preparation for Saskatchewan's long, cold winter this week, as did Pammy, Brian, and Joanna. Thanks to you all, and thanks to Cherish for your tithing-like commitment to This Is Hell. We really appreciate it. Jess, who's on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com. Tomorrow, um, we have Jennifer Berkshire and Jack Schneider on their book, A A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School. On Thursday's show, During the Moment of Truth, Jeff Dorchin will stand on a principal, and we will be announcing Thursday's guest either later today online or on tomorrow's show. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, what are you refusing to concede? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Jess Lipka. Thanks to Alex and Jess and Alistair, our guest, staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>